If you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we'll be in just a moment. Revelation chapter 2. Most of you all know I now have a daughter at Texas A&M, and we have lots of Texas A&M folks in our congregation. Last night's good win reminded me of the famous Willie Nelson song, Mamas don't let your babies grow up to be kickers. Right. If you saw what happened last night, your heart hurts for the Arkansas kicker. Though it was a good win for the Aggies. He doinked it off the upright in a way that I don't think any of us have ever seen a football doink off of the uprights. Many of you have heard of Polycarp. He's probably... One, well, safe to say, one of the most famous martyrs in Christian history. One who gave his life for his faithfulness to Jesus. Interesting thing about Polycarp, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. So, right, there was Jesus, and one of Jesus' disciples was John. And then John had a number of disciples, I'm sure, and one of them was named Polycarp. He lived at the end of the first century and on into the second, and we believe he died in 160 A.D. Another interesting thing about him, as we look at our passage this morning in chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus is addressing the church in Smyrna. Polycarp, sometime after this, became the bishop of the church in Smyrna, the leader of the church in this same city. His faithfulness to Jesus was renowned, and eventually, though it got him in trouble, he was arrested, taken before the proconsul, the Roman official there in Smyrna, taken into the arena, and he was told to apostatize to renounce his faithfulness to Jesus. History records that the proconsul said to him, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. The Christians were regarded as atheists because they would not worship all of the gods, and in particular, Caesar. So he was told to repent and say, down with the atheists, down with the Christians. The tradition says that Polycarp looked at the multitude in the stadium, gestured toward them and said, down with the atheists, referring to all of those who would not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The story goes that the proconsul said to him, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And his most famous line then came, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here. I'll throw you to them if you don't repent. Call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. 
I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. I mean, br bring on the beast, let him eat me, so I can be changed from my sinful state into a glorified state. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with a fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And indeed, the proconsul brought on the fire. And Polycarp gave his life because of his faithfulness to Jesus. What sort of things might have strengthened him to essentially have no fear and to be faithful until death? What sort of things might strengthen you and me in our life of discipleship to Jesus when the heat might get turned up for our faithfulness as well? I have big plans for this morning to try to get through two of the letters from Jesus to these churches. We'll see how we do. And this first one, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, we're going to see a handful of things that I think strengthened Polycarp. In fact, I really believe that he would have had a copy of this letter. And he would have known exactly what Jesus had to say in particular to his city, to his church, to the church there in Smyrna. There's a handful of things I think that would give him comfort. The first is this, the comfort or give him strength, the comfort that Jesus knows what I'm going through. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. We'll come back to that. But, but again, Jesus is connecting back to that vision of Christ in chapter 1. And one of the things Jesus said about himself is that he had died and yet had come, and back, had come back to life. But he goes on and says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are of the synagogue of Satan. The first thing is that Jesus knows what I'm going through. If you are or have ever suffered for your faithfulness to Jesus, he knows it. And most of us may be shy to, to carry that mantle of I have been persecuted for my faith in Jesus because we know our brothers and sisters around the world go through things much harsher than us. But Open Doors USA is a ministry that keeps tabs on Christian persecution around the world. One of the things they've done for us is helped us define what persecution is. And here's how they define it. Persecution is any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification with Christ. This can include hostile feelings, attitudes, words, and actions. 
they point us to Luke chapter 6, verse 22, where four different verbs are used by Jesus in describing persecution. Jesus said this, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And they write, note that it is Jesus in you who is the reason for and the target of persecution. They go on in Romans 8, 17, Paul says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So when we share in Jesus' sufferings, hatred, exclusion, insults, rejection, we become heirs who will also share in his glory. The four verbs above can be experienced in varying degrees of intensity. When we ask audiences in North America for word associations with the term persecution, we usually get the answers torture, imprisonment, martyrdom. We often tend to think of persecution as only the very intense forms. But even when you experience hatred, exclusion, insult, and rejection because of Jesus in you in a lighter intensity, you are still being persecuted and therefore for are an heir of God. So maybe you've experienced this because of your faith. And one of the comforting things for you and me to know in those moments is that Jesus knows it. He's not aloof to your suffering for his name's sake. I couldn't, I'm not so sure it applies, but I couldn't get the old spiritual out of my mind this week. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Remember that one? Nobody knows but Jesus. The reality is, if you're suffering for Jesus, others may know. Your spouse may know. Your kids may know. Your church family may know. But certainly someone who knows is Jesus. I know. The tribulation, the poverty, the blasphemy that you are experiencing. I think another thing that could strengthen us is the conviction that spiritual riches are a better currency, a far better currency than the American dollar. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Apparently, some of these believers, the persecution that they were feeling and one of the effects of it was poverty. Because of their allegiance to Christ, they had lost their job. Opportunities were gone. And any gainful employment they may have had was harder to come by, if not impossible. And yet Jesus says to them, but you are rich. a good reminder. The Apostle Paul said that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Paul said elsewhere of Christ, who himself was rich, yet he became poor so that we who were poor might become rich. He was rich, the second person of the Trinity, sharing eternal glory with his Father, yet he became poor. He became one of us so that we who were poor, sinners, separated from God, destined for eternal wrath, might become rich, forgiven, reconciled, accepted with the promise of eternal life. Jesus wanted these suffering, poor Christians to know Listen, I know your poverty. I know you've lost your job. I know you've lost the opportunity. But don't forget, you are so rich. It reminds me of Jim Elliott, the missionary, the martyr. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. They probably knew that to remain faithful to Jesus would cost them if they would just swear allegiance to Caesar rather than Christ, they could keep their job. And opportunities would be open before them like crazy. But if, if, they, if they said, no, only Christ is Lord, they knew the ramifications of it. And they went for it. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What good will it do a person if he gains the whole world and yet Will it ever come to that for you and me? I don't know. Already has come to you. Maybe you've already been looked over at work. Maybe opportunities don't anymore because of your faithfulness to Jesus. Things are far better currency than physical. See the confidence that Jesus knows the opponents of his people and will we'll deal justly. I see that from verse 9. I know your tribulations, your poverty, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue, but are a synagogue of Satan. Some strong language from Jesus. author helps these are Jews only by nothing they were not Jews by inward devotion and faith like their father Abraham the church were in reality doing Satan's bidding not God's they 
And so there in Smyrna, you had the Christian community that was made up of believing Jews and Gentiles together in one body. But then you, you had the, the Jewish synagogue, those who were Jews but who, who didn't follow in the faith of believing that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus indeed was the Lord. And those Jews did not like the Christians. And blasphemed them or slandered them to the authorities making life difficult on the Christians. And Jesus knows exactly who they are. And I think it carries with it the reality that he will deal justly in the end. Now, we don't wish the judgment of God upon anyone. We long and pray for the salvation of our enemies as Jesus taught us too. That God would be merciful to them and he would bring them to repentance and they would know the forgiveness of God and they would know the presence of the Spirit and the new life that he gives. But we also see this theme in the book of Revelation. We see it in Revelation chapter 6 of the martyrs who have died because of their faithfulness to Jesus, looking to God and saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? There is a longing for the salvation of the enemies of God, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of the church. We pray for that, but there's also this sense of longing for God's justice to be done in the vindication of his people. As I pondered on that more and more this week, it hit me. What would the longing be in your heart if your daddy had been killed because of his faithfulness to Jesus? What would the longing of your heart be if they had raped your mom, if they had kidnapped your sister, if they had burned down your church building, taken your pastor and beheaded him, what might our longings be if indeed the persecution we experienced began to approach what some of our brothers and sisters around the world do? There is comfort, I think, knowing that Jesus not only knows what you are going through, but he knows those who are opposing his gospel, his church, his people, and he will take care. Another help, I think, is the clarity of Christ's call to courage and faithfulness. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And down a little bit further, be faithful until death. haven't mentioned it yet, but now's a good time. Jesus is not going to say anything negative about this church. If you know about these letters, you know he will commend, and then he will say, but I have this against you. You're doing really great here, but I want you to take a look here. Not for Smyrna. Not for Smyrna. I know what you're going through. I know who's doing it. Don't fear and be faithful unto death. I just love the clarity 
There's no confusion on what Jesus is asking us to do. It certainly may not be easy. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. I think here's another comfort. It's the reminder that it won't get any easier, only harder, probably. Jesus says, I know what you've been going through, but hey, it's about to get even harder. The devil's about to cast some of you into prison, so you'll be tested. You'll have tribulation for 10 days. Is this a literal 10 days? Almost all the commentators say no. It's symbolic, the use of numbers in the book of Revelation, so often symbolic. And for 10 days, it seems to point to it'll be, it, it, it'll be a short period of time, and it's certainly limited. Jesus is in control. He knows exactly how long this suffering will last. But it's a good reminder that we should never be fooled into thinking that if we really love God, then we will always be prosperous, happy, and well-received by the culture. Right? Trust in Jesus and all your problems will go away. Not. Trust in Jesus and everything will be easy. You'll always be happy. You'll always be prosperous. And from beginning to end, the Bible says that is not the case. Again, these believers were experiencing economic oppression, the denial or loss of employment or business opportunities. They were being slandered, misrepresented to others, which made life hard. They were being ostracized from friendships and even from family and mixing it up within the city. Jesus says it's going to be even harder. But don't fear. Be faithful unto death. And maybe here's the final, the promise of future glory. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The way the little Greek phrase works here, it's probably this. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown, which is life, eternal life. If you and I, in the midst of our suffering for the sake of Jesus, will be faithful to him. There's this promise of future glory, eternal life. And he goes on. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What is that? The first death is your physical death. The second death is eternal separation from God in hell. And so Jesus' promise to his people is, I will give you the crown which is eternal life and you'll not be hurt by the second death. 
praise God. And this is all grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's, I want to come back to how Jesus introduced himself in verse 8. I'm the one who was dead and has come back to life. Jesus has gone before his people. And he himself died at the hands of evil men. In the accomplishment of all of God's purposes, when he died... He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. But indeed, he died. And yet, three days later, he came back to life. Risen from the dead, no longer to die ever again. He said, I'm the one who was dead, but I have come back to life. And he promises to all of his people that you will experience the same. That should you suffer until death, don't worry, I'm going to give you the crown, which is eternal life. It's a promise to those who suffer until death, but it's a promise to all of God's people, no matter how we die. Of course, all of us hope to die peacefully in our sleep one day. But however it comes our way, because of our union with Jesus Christ, we anticipate, expect, and have the assured hope that though we die, we shall live forevermore. Martin Luther. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, surely more could be said, but I think if we just step back from this letter to the church of Smyrna, if you're suffering for the sake of Jesus, whether it's very intense or maybe just a little bit intense. Jesus knows he's with you. His call to you and me is don't fear. Be faithful even if we have to go all the way to death in our faithfulness. We will rise. We will live for him, with him forever more. Well, let's move now to the church of Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, yikes, yikes. To Smyrna, it was the one who was dead, but has come back to life, foreshadowing what he would be saying to his people, be faithful to death, I'll give you life. Last week to the church in Ephesus, it was, it's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I'm the one who's right there in the midst of you, and I've got you here. The one with the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. It's a sort of judgment. And so it's a little bit scarier. He commends them, though. He begins, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. These Christians lived in a rough spot, did they not? Jesus says he calls where they live Satan's throne, where Satan dwells. Goodness, what if he said that to us, right? Point is, he probably could. To the angel of the church of Katie, right, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. I know where you live, where Satan dwells. They lived in a tough spot. The scholars are not exactly sure what Jesus had in mind here. Some think it's a reference to a gigantic altar to Zeus that was there in Pergamum. Others think maybe it was, let me find it because I've got to read it here in my notes, Asclepius, I think, Asclepius. There was a great shrine to Asclepius who was the god of healing, often depicted as a snake. And some think maybe Jesus had that in mind. Satan is the great serpent of old. and People would come from all around to be healed or to seek healing from this Shrine to the Greek god Asclepius, the god of healing. Some think maybe it was simply because of the dominating cult of emperor worship that was there in Pergamum. Of course, it was all throughout this part of the world, but maybe there in Pergamum it was even stronger. Whatever it is, it certainly sounds like a hard place to live, especially if you're a Christian. So much so that even one of their own, this man named Antipas, who was a faithful witness, had been killed among them. Maybe it was that here in Pergamum that no Christian had yet lost their life because of their faithfulness to Jesus except this man. And and maybe things were heating up hot. When I, when I read this, I think about uh, Acts chapter 12, where Herod has James, the apostle. He's the first of the apostles to die for his faith. He has James killed. And then he has Peter put in prison. And then the next scene is the church gathering together to pray. You have to wonder, what are they praying about? Well, surely it was probably good night. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Maybe we're next. These folks lived where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. And Antipas, one of them, is dead. And maybe they're thinking we're next, but Jesus commends them. Even in, in this, you hold fast my name. Way to go. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because... There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I think the issue within this church of Pergamum had to do with false teaching, the teaching of Balaam, kept teaching Balak, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
here was a faithful group of people, at least on the whole, living in a hard place to be a faithful Christian, and yet they were holding fast. And yet still, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. The story is from Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25. The Israelites had come out of Egypt. God had rescued them, and they were making their way through the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, and they had to go through Moab. Well, Balak was the king of Moab, and he was afraid of the Israelites coming through. He had heard of their redemption from Egypt. He had heard of their great God. And they were coming through Moab, and he was afraid. And so he went east, and he hired a prophet of sorts, we might say, named Balaam, a sorcerer, to come and pronounce a curse upon God's people. Balaam, I'll give you good money. What I need you to do is come and curse the Israelites. If you know the story, God would not let him curse his people. Every time he went to curse them, it turned into a blessing three times over. But apparently the clues seem to be that Balaam thought, if I can't curse them, maybe I can corrupt them. So in Numbers chapter 25, we read, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Baal was the false Canaanite god, and the Lord was angry against Israel. We, we read a little bit more in Numbers. Apparently, Balaam thought, if I can't curse them, maybe I can corrupt them, and so Balaam seemed to work with the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men to come and be in relation with them, to eat the food sacrificed to their idols, to bow down to their idols, and to enjoy the immorality associated with the idol worship. I have a few things against you because there's some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit acts of immorality, so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If I read it right, this what Balaam had done became a type of what these Nicolaitans were doing. And we don't know much about them. We learned last week that Jesus says that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And it was apparently some form of false teaching that was leading some astray in the body of Christ there in Pergamum. And the church apparently was letting it go. Therefore, repent, Jesus says, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I think maybe if, if we were to step back and quickly say, what's the lesson for the church in Pergamum? What's the lesson for us? It's to keep watch on the teaching among us. 
they were commended for their holding fast to Jesus, which I hope that we do as well. But Jesus says, hey, you, you need to keep watch on the teaching that is among you. And of course, we have a lot of teaching that goes on here at Redeemer Community Church. We love the Word of God. And so I teach and preach here on Sunday mornings from the pulpit, and Matt Williamson teaches a class, and Mark Wells teaches a class, and on Tuesday morning, Mary Luerman teaches a class, and Wednesday night, Berta Trulock teaches a class, and Mike Henry on Sunday morning, on Wednesday night, and Katie Katner with our kiddos, and Paul Katner and Kyle Skelton with our senior high kids, and all of our community group leaders like Tom Brock and Forrest Bierkus and Justin Pfeiffer, Chris Long, Aaron Doe, Joey Payroll, Hank Luerman, and more. Lots of teaching. Looking to the scriptures, trying to understand what God is teaching and saying and how it applies to our life and then opening up our mouths and saying, thus says the Lord. This is what God's word says. This is what God's word mean, means. And this, this is how we ought to respond to it. There's, there's a lot of that that goes on here at Redeemer. And praise God that it does. So we could say there's this teaching from the top down. But at the same time, there is from the bottom up. Not so much in, in this context where you just have to sit and listen. But in Sunday school classes, in my men's Bible study on Friday morning, in the women's classes, in community groups, if you will, everybody kind of has an opportunity to speak up and give their insight into the Word of God. So, so the teaching is not only from the top down, but also from the bottom up. And I think Jesus would encourage us in all of those contexts, let's, let's just keep watch on the the teaching ministry of the Word of God because false teaching can lead us astray to thinking things about God and about the Lord Jesus and about the Christian life that aren't true and can, if not checked, maybe lead us into loose living, if you will, as was apparently certainly the case here. So to real practically and to keep on going, if, if you hear something funny, not funny, but if you hear something that just doesn't sit right with you, bring it to the attention of one of the elders. Now, we have to be careful here. We have to be wise here. We don't want to be going into every context in which we are here at Redeemer just waiting for somebody to say something just a little bit wrong, right? And oftentimes, sometimes folks will say stuff, probably me too, that we're not even sure we believe ourselves, and it quickly gets corrected and everybody moves on. That's awesome, right? You're in a Bible study and somebody says something, you're like, well, I'm not real sure about that. And somebody else will say, you know, I'm not so sure that's right. I think, you know, the Bible teaches this and kind of gets corrected and everybody moves on and here we go. But if something takes hold, if something keeps coming up, if, if something and, and, and you say, boy, I, I'm just not so sure that's what the Bible teaches. I'm not so sure that's what we believe here at Redeemer. And it's not just on a little issue. It, it, this is on an important issue. Let's talk about that. Jesus said to this church that was tolerating some teaching that was causing some real problems, don't do that. Don't tolerate it. Repent from that. 
So let us know. Talk to somebody about it. I, I've been here for 14 years, and maybe on three fingers I could think where we really had an issue like this. And so this is not something, hopefully not something that would happen every week or, or often at all. Praise God for the teaching ministry of Redeemer Community Church. But let's just be warned here from Pergamon. He's got some promises. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Three things here. The first is hidden manna. Of course, if you know the Old Testament, whenever God was leading his people through, is, through the wilderness, he provided manna every day. He provides for his people. And this seems to be a promise to those who overcome, who continue to trust Jesus, hold fast to him until the end that he will give us some of the hidden manna. The idea of hidden seems to be, listen, it's a promise of the age to come. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. It's hidden to us. But he will meet every need that we have. And I will give him a white stone. There's lots of seeming options from the interpreters here. The one that some at least come to and say, I really think it's this, is that apparently victorious athletes in the day received a white stone with their name written on it. It signified their victory, and it even apparently served as their admission into the banquet of victors. If that's what Jesus meant here, that's pretty cool. Not only in the age to come are you going to be given the hidden manna. Am I going to meet every one of your needs? But you'll be given a white stone, a victor's stone, and it'll have your name on it. A new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. John MacArthur commenting on that says, you know, I have often taught about this and taught about the fact that we'll be given a white stone and a name will be on it which no one knows in, and inevitably every time I teach it somebody comes up and says what do you think the name on it's gonna be and he says John says no one knows how am I gonna know he does go on to say though it apparently in context would seemingly indicate a name of personal affection and honor I don't know, but I, I love being around folks who are good at giving nicknames. I wish I was good at this. I wish I had a nickname for everybody here. When I played football at North Texas, my nickname was Air Mayor. I could throw the ball. Years ago, I used to do CrossFit here in Katy, and the dude who ran it, he was one of these guys. He, could, he was great at giving nicknames, and so you were never known as Mitch. I was the general. I had played football, I was the quarterback, and so he said, oh, you're the field general, you're the general. And so every day, I wouldn't, you know, you'd put your stuff up on the board. You don't write your name, you write your nickname up there. Tara and the girls and I have recently been watching some of the Rocky movies. 
Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion. That's a good one. I don't know if these will be nicknames, but if MacArthur's right, a name of personal affection. Hey, you're not, you're not Mitch, you're, you're not Dennis, you're going to have a name for us. No one knows but he who receives it. Folks, in the book of Revelation, those who overcome are Christians. They, they have, they've come to know the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. They, by the grace of God, have understood that they are sinners and that they need forgiveness to be reconciled to God. And they, they've come to realize that God has sent Jesus Christ to be a savior and the king of their life. And they trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and new life in him. And he's their Lord. They do not submit ultimate allegiance to Caesar they submit to Jesus and they hold fast to him. They overcome our strength, your strength, my strength comes from Jesus. Last week, we had a baptism. If you were here, Mark Duhon and Mike baptized him, and then I preached, and service was over, and I came down, and family, hey, and Mark was there, and I grabbed him by the shoulders, and I put my hands on him, and I looked him in the eyes, and I said, are you ready? Following Jesus won't always be easy. Sometimes it'll be hard. And I said, not everybody follows Jesus, but a bunch of us do. His mama was standing right there. I said, your mama follows Jesus. Your daddy follows Jesus. I follow Jesus. There's a whole bunch of people in this room right now who follow Jesus. You are not alone. We are with you. More than that, Christ is with you. Now, I could have said, but didn't. Don't fear and be faithful until death. You know? In fact, I did mention that a little bit. I said, you follow Jesus your whole life, and hopefully you're going to live a long, long time, but unless Jesus comes back, just like your daddy and your mama and I are going to die, you're going to die too. Hey, and I caught myself, good night. What are you saying to this kid, Mitch? You know, he just got baptized. But I did. I said, you're going to die too. But guess what? When you die, you're going to fly into the arms of Jesus. You're going to live forevermore. So may God continue to help us to be faithful to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, 
reading a book this morning a little bit uh, by David Wells, and he talked about how so often in American Christianity we lack gravitas, weight to our discipleship to Jesus. Read about this week a woman, a Christian from Iran who lives here in the United States but just told her husband she wants to move back to Iran because American Christians are sleepy and I'm getting sleepy too. Lord, may it not be so of us. Pray that we would have some spiritual weight to us. Strength, endurance, patience, love, faithfulness. We are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ because we are but sinners. More than we know. And it's because of Him and Him alone that we are forgiven that we belong to you and it is only by his strength through his spirit that we might continue to follow Jesus so Lord give us a great sense of humility but united to Christ a great sense of confidence that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Lord, if there's any here today who've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for a new kind of life submitted to his leadership, pray that you would help them even this moment to see their need for Christ. That they might turn from themselves, look to him, and take him as Savior and Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.